0: I would like to see a new sort of a grand deal between the you know the governed and the governors, you know, and 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 somehow the the social charter should be that we should be a little bit more helping, a little bit more forthcoming and helping the very poor, uh, at least in terms of education and health, and if possible maybe housing also.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanamy. My guest this week needs no introduction. Dr. Miftai Ismail is the former finance minister of Pakistan and member of the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz. This was a fascinating and wide ranging discussion where we talked about the coronavirus pandemic and its economic impact on Pakistan, structural reforms that Pakistan needs to pass urgently and measures he believes his government should have taken when it was in power. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Dr. Miftai Ismail, welcome to Pakistanami.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: There's a lot to discuss, and I hope that you and your family is safe and sound during these trying times, the coronavirus pandemic. I've been working from home for over a month now. And so I want to start off our discussion there in terms of you being a successful businessman, someone who's had public experience as well, heading the finance ministry in Pakistan. How do you see the impact of COVID nineteen on Pakistan's economy, and what do you think is the path ahead uh, in the near terms for Pakistan's economic prospects?
0: Uh, thank you once again, Uzair, uh, for having me. Uh, this this is such a very uh, such a new problem and, and such a devastatingly large problem that nobody has a handle on quite what would happen, and we don't even know what uh, how this will play out. Uh, whether it will take a few months or a few weeks or many many months to contain this or contain the uh, you know public health impact of this um, whether we have to have lockdowns on and off between now and whenever they come up with a vaccine uh hopefully next year if you know uh, so so there are lots of unanswered questions about uh, surrounding coronavirus And so it's very difficult to gauge the economic impact. Uh, But you could just say that, you know, the world economy has gone down. So that is going to obviously uh, decrease Pakistan's exports. Uh, People are staying home, staying in homes. Uh, There is uh, economic, uh, serious economic recession now in Pakistan. Uh, I think the the economy will probably contract Uh, for the very poor and, and, and the lower middle classes, Uh, This should be a very difficult time, very tough time uh, to make rent, uh, to buy food uh, for the daily wage workers. It should be a very difficult time. Uh, But uh, for what it's worth, I mean, Pakistan has not uh, shut down the entire economy. Sindh government has imposed uh, more of a lockdown than the other three provinces. Uh, But even in Sindh, you know, things are opening up in the punjab for which is the heartland of pakistan 65 60% of our population lives there um, you know outside of larger cities like lahore and uh, Faisalabad, most everything is open uh, certainly in smaller towns so uh, so the hardship is of varying degrees uh, but the public health implications of not uh, closing down are also very severe so it's very difficult to see how this will play out but nothing good will come out of this. That's for sure. And, so, and go on, please. Sorry.
1: I was just going to say, from your perspective, um, when you look at what's going on, you mentioned the exports and obviously they will contract. Um, another thing Pakistan is reliant on are remittances. And of course, in, in the Gulf, particularly from the Gulf where oil prices have collapsed, do you fear that there's a risk that the significant decline in both export earnings and remittances will cause a balance of payments crisis or a situation for Pakistan where it's unable to meet its external payment obligations? And based on what you've seen or what we've seen from the IMF and what it's indicated in terms of additional funding and putting the IMF program on hold, do you think that is enough uh, to prevent another issue in terms of balance of payments uh, for Pakistan? Or does more need to happen to make sure that uh, that issue does not come up to the forefront yet again?
0: pakistan has always lived uh, close to the edge when it comes to balance of payment
1: um, but where we will see
0: perhaps a shrinkage in our exports and and and, and also in remittances i think uh, the fact that oil prices are now at uh, historic lows will also help us uh, in terms of uh, you know reducing our impo- oil import bill and uh, other imports will also go down so so i don't know how the, the trade deficit outlook would look, but I, I, I have a feeling that it wouldn't be so bad uh, compared to what it was uh, or the current account deficit. The IMF has given us another, another $1.4 billion. Uh, that's about what we need to pay IMF during the next fiscal year, about $1.2 billion. So we'll, we'll have another $200 million extra coming in for IMF. The program that you talk about has not really been halted. Uh, but the program conditions will obviously be reevaluated in in, in light of what's happened and, and and so i think it would be easier for the government of pakistan to meet the conditionalities of this program um, but not that the government was meeting the original conditionalities to begin with but uh, but I, I think we should be able to avoid any 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 balance of payment acute balance of payments crisis um, but yeah it's is always like I said, you know, lived close to the edge and we'll continue mm-hmm. to do so.
1: And so again, looking at the domestic economy, of course, you know, my biggest fear has been that, you know, Pakistan has lived to the edge. I fully agree with you. But even during periods of crises, um, we've had the informal side of the economy continue to chug along. And I know you said that Sindh was the one that basically shut down its economy fully uh, or uh, in a much more drastic way than other provinces. But, Karachi is the epicenter of Pakistan's economic uh, engine. Um, And so from your point of view, how do you see uh, uh, policy evolving in the near term uh, to make sure that the informal economy comes back on track whenever the lockdown ends? And for all purposes, it seems like it's about to end soon. Um, What in your view, from your perspective, are things that the government both at the federal and the provincial side can do to make sure that both the informal and formal sectors of the economy come back to life and we have a what economists are calling a V-shaped recovery instead of a U-shaped recovery.
0: So, you know, the federal government has never really, the prime minister has never really owned a lockdown. And even the lockdown in Punjab uh, happened perhaps uh, against his will. In fact, the day after the lockdown in Punjab, he was complaining about it on TV. And he's basically been talking from both sides of his mouth uh, as far as the lockdown is concerned. Um and now I hear he says the lockdown has worked. But the lockdown has supposedly worked because, you know, the the, the worst fears of um, people in terms of the number of infection has not uh, come true. Uh, but, uh, you know, since uh, last week, the lockdown conditions have been softened up uh, in elsewhere in Pakistan, but also in Sin in Karachi. Uh, and Karachi. Uh, and which makes sense that you know you you wanted lockdown to have 2 3 weeks you cannot have a continuous and and, and complete lockdown in, for indefinite period uh but the idea was that if you have a lockdown you try and trace and track as many people as you can and in, increase your testing capacity so then uh after, once you open the lockdown you can sort of have a you know some measure of you know tracking capability in terms of uh, infected people, that really hasn't happened, and, and it's not surprising given the, the the lack of infrastructure, facilities, and the resources in Pakistan. Uh, but in terms of the opening of the economy, formally and informally, um, look, I mean, the economy they, they'll probably open cl- cl- close to Eid. The economy will probably be open uh, anyway. Uh, now they've already decided to let the let there be taravi prayers and mosques. So basically, now. Uh, you know, it makes very little sense to actually shut down economic activities uh, when, when congregations, large congregations are sort of being allowed. Um, let's see if, 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 if these guys uh, are able to uh, follow the protocols. I hope they do. Uh, but but I, I see that the economy will open. I, I don't really know exactly what the world would look like once uh, this coronavirus thing is over. But but I suppose that at some point after after taking a hit, you know, our economy will be back. Uh, the economy will be different from what it is now, uh, but you know, people uh, life will go on, uh, and and the government will be able to get both the formal and the informal economy open. You know, that that's going to happen.
1: And so, from you know what they've talked about the construction package, if one could call it that, or cash transfers to SAS, which I personally think was a, was a smart move and something that maybe needs to be expanded even further, given that there's a lot of pain for lower middle classes and the daily wage earners, and they need to be taken care of. What other things would you personally recommend the government consider to to make sure that eventually when they do open up the economy, that things come back on track faster than what they otherwise would be without government intervention?
0: Well, I totally agree with you. I think the SAS transfer is a wonderful thing uh and uh you know we've been advocating this muslim league has been advocating this this is a great 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 move by the government to actually uh, increase this transfers and and there's going to be some um, spillage there's going to be you know five or ten percent of the people who will get this money who are probably not um, you know maybe the rightful beneficiaries who probably are not deserving but but that should not um that should not uh, dissuade the government from continuing with this program for the next few months as long as there is pain and unemployment in the economy. so I think that that's a good that's a good move. Uh, my idea was that you know there should be self-registration and uh, people you know through their electricity bill and through their telephone bills can show that they deserve uh, government help and then the money could be transferred to them uh, to easy pass or any cell phone, you know, platform rather than giving cash to them. And that would uh, also mean that there would be fewer uh, congregations and then people will get money, you know, in a dignified manner in their own homes on their mobile phones. Uh, but, uh, the, the, government state bank has also tried to, I think, uh, make, uh, you know, uh, money easy, uh, or, you know, they have, they've eased the monetary policy, uh, and 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 I, I personally think that you know the, the the entire objective right now of monetary policy should be uh, to ensure liquidity in the market, and the entire objective of the fiscal policy should be to help the poor through this crisis. I mean, these are the two objectives that that these guys should have. And uh, as long as you can see the poor and 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 the low-income people through this crisis, I think you know then. Like I said, opening up the economy is not that difficult, and people will figure things out. And Pakistanis are enterprising and will will live. But but you know the government has to help us through this crisis. The very poor, and a lot of good businesses there might just go bankrupt because of liquidity crunches. Uh, if you are a if you are an owner of a barber shop or a salon or, or you know like a gym, and you have to make rent every month and you have to you know pay other employees and all that stuff and and you have no revenue coming in it's very difficult but many of these guys don't have uh, you know properties in their name so it would be very difficult for them to get loans so the state bank has to sort of come up with policies where they can genuinely help out small and medium enterprises where which provide the most employment in pakistan so that's one thing that they they have to do and then also, you know, the 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 taxi drivers in Pakistan, the Uber drivers in Pakistan, the the carpenters, the electricians, who are making good money uh, when there is employment, and when the economy is working, it's very difficult to help them also. And and giving them twelve thousand rupees for three months, or three thousand rupees a month, or four thousand rupees a month is not quite enough because they have kids. Uh, maybe the government can pick up their, the children's school fees. So there are ways to go about doing it, There, you know, so I, I think, in the, the, but we'll have to see how things play out if the government is essentially ending the lockdown and, and, and let daily voyages work, let taxi drivers work, let bus drivers work, then I think the need for transfers is less, but of course then you're putting people in harm's way and in serious jeopardy of, of catching infections.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the cash-22, right? And I, I agree with you that making sure that there's liquidity in the market, particularly in, in the informal sector, is very, very important because once those transactions freeze up, it's harder to get them running again versus making sure that they keep running even at a lower pace uh, than before. Um, from your perspective, you know, my view is that no crisis should go to waste. And the PTI government, when it came into power was facing an economic crisis. That was an opportunity for reforms. They waited, in my view, uh, too long to go to the IMF, and that was an opportunity that was missed. This is a second economic crisis that has come on their hands. And my view is this is an opportunity for passing structural reforms, significant ones that Pakistan has needed uh, at least for a decade, if not more. What's your perspective on on using this crisis as a means to pushing through those structural reforms? A, what would those be if you were to pick uh, priority areas? And B, your party, the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, you yourself, Esan Iqbal and others have consistently talked about a charter of an economy. Do you think this is the right time for maybe political leaders and others to come together and forge a consensus on what this charter of an economy looks like, given all that's happened both in Pakistan and around the world?
0: I, 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 I mean, I'm not sure we can necessarily agree to a charter of the economy or a comprehensive charter of the economy, but I think we can talk about this and come up with some minimal plan. Uh, and, and at this point, I think we could do that. Uh, it, but, but the more interesting question that you ask is, is, you know how should, what structural changes the government of Pakistan should make taking advantage of this opportunity or a crisis, as you say, uh, and which is an opportunity. I I I would you know I would sort of think that uh, what 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 what's very clear now is that it, Pakistan is a society of a few haves and a vast sea of have-nots, and the have-nots have not been dealt a fair hand, and you know it's so much easier to uh, it's to get government handouts if you're rich. And the amount of money and subsidies that we give to fertilizer companies is far more than what we give, you know, in BISPs and SAS now, what they call it, and all these stuff. And I, I, I would like to see a new sort of a grand deal between the, you know, the governed and the governors, you know, and, 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 and somehow the, the social charter should be that we should be a little bit more helping, a little bit more forthcoming and helping the very poor, Uh, at least in terms of education and health and if possible maybe housing also but health and education i think we should have reasonably good quality health and education in pakistan uh, for all of pakistani children so that they have some short now there are many many issues about how we educate and you know how we fail our children uh you know teaching them in the wrong language you know not in their mother tongue and stuff like that um, and, and wrote memorization and all that stuff. So, so that, I mean, a lot of money that we spent on education is essentially wasted. Um, and we have to rethink that and think smartly. I think the health problem, we really have to take care of the poor people's health. Um, and, and, and and for instance, I was just thinking, you know, the government was talking about opening up the factories and a lot of factory owners were very desperate, really, to open up their factories and one of the proposals was that you know to make the factory owners responsible for the health co- cost of all their workers but why not do this forever I mean you know why I mean uh, typically in Pakistan you have to pay EOBI which is Employable Benefit Social Security to the provinces uh, then you have to pay workers profit participation fund and workers welfare fund you know we could either end all these taxes except for maybe EOBI or even end EOBI and, and 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 make private employers certainly employers who have more than four or five hundred employees responsible for the health care needs of all their employees and their families and and i think that that may be a good deal and i think that a lot of employers would be ready and the quality of health educa- healthcare would obviously increase and, and 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 if we make certain structural changes it would be easier to get all the employers to you know make all these employees regular regularized in their jobs right now people often hire contractors and hire employees through contractors. So they're not proper documented employees of their company. So there are ways to do it. And I think there are, you know, there are ways to make structural changes. Uh, but I would like to sh- to have, to see a greater shift of resources towards the most poor, towards the very poor, especially in health and education.
1: Hmm. I, I, I completely agree. And I think, It's important, the the thing that you pointed out about restructuring, the essentially a social contract between the state and its people, particularly the have-nots, the 99% of society. And I think um, it is about time in Pakistan that conversation happened. Um, It's happening here in the United States as we speak as well, although in the US context, like Pakistan, it's a very polarized environment, so I don't know what kind of um uh, agreement can can be made across the aisle um probably the same is true in in pakistan as well um but i th- this idea that you know you need a restructuring of the social contract and diverting resources to education and healthcare um the 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 person on the flip side if i were to be the devil's advocate would argue is where would you bring these resources in from pakistan's fiscal deficit um is a chronic problem um, its external sector has been a chronic problem. Um, so where do you find the money? You've been in the finance ministry. So I would like to hear your perspective in terms of if you were to do that, um, where is the diversion of resources going to come from to make that happen and make it a reality?
0: Okay, that's a very, very good question. But unfortunately, it's also a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the Okay, so... Uh, in in terms of our budget, there are structural issues because of which our budget deficits are very high. In particular, I mean uh, about six tenths of one, uh, six of the our budget revenue, sixty percent of our revenues actually uh, from federal revenues go to the provinces, which make um, federal deficits you know almost chronic. Uh, and in the beginning, provinces were getting a lot of money and they were not able to spend this money. But now, obviously, people figure out the way to spend money. So, the provinces are also spending as much money as they get. So, deficits have become really big in Pakistan. Uh, I think think that, you know, um, A, there is... I mean, there is, for instance, you know, I mean, the government of Pakistan does give subsidies to the rich people. So, I mean, we can just, you know, sort of divert that subsidy towards the poor. Uh, But there is more to that. Uh, If you want to spend more money than that, I think I, I would... I'm not really a pro-government type guy. I'm not a leftist guy at all, um, so I would actually use private public-private partnerships in, in many of these things, and and, and not private sector. And in oftentimes, unfortunately, in Pakistan, public-private partnerships are just basically given to your cronies and friends, you know, mm-hmm. in the private sector to make you know lucrative money. But I'm talking about real public-private partnerships, competitive you know, and economically efficient private partnerships, which will bring in a lot of money in education and hospitals and health. We can obviously do that. Uh, but but really generating resources additional resources is not that difficult. Uh, it's it's if once you have a will you can sort of do that. Um, you don't necessarily divert money from elsewhere. You actually make the pie bigger and you actually make certain changes in 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 NFC awards and others so you can ensure. And certainly you know the provinces get a lot of money and they are the ones responsible for education and health and the provinces have a lot of money. And and, and 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 so so I think that you can get these guys focused on these things, um, and it's a matter of getting focused. And in Pakistan, there's not so much polarization in terms of any. Everybody, I think, understands that we need to do more in health and education. It's sometimes uh, uh, people just don't know how to go about doing this. And and I think that in any case, um, what happens is that, and this is worldwide that you know people who have. Rich people have greater influence and greater lobbying power with the government, right? Everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, people like uh, people who have particular benefits uh, lobby the government more. But you know, when you have uh, diversified benefits, like everybody is getting a little bit. Um, Everybody is happy because of some education. You know, they are getting a little bit more education. Nobody will go and lobby the government. But if some uh, giant industrialist getting a lot of money for subsidy, he, he he goes and lobbies for his cause. So you have to make sure that you know that that you. Uh, account for that, you know that only the rich and the powerful can lobby and, and the, the poor and the not-so-rich cannot lobby and then you ensure that they also get the rightful dues. In any case, I mean, you just have a contract that, you know, look, we're going to have a country where we're going to give a first-class education and healthcare to all our children. You know, and and, and then you go about doing this and there are many ways to do this.
1: Hmm. No, that's that's very interesting. And I think the, the problem of Will is, I think, very important. We've had guests, uh, I had Dr. Khaled Ekram, someone who, has worked at the World Bank at length, was at the Pakistan Planning Commission before. And really, uh, he had a driver's seat uh, on the Korean reforms. And I spoke with him about this as well. Um, And I agree, like that was a priority that the Koreans at that time had made that they were going to scale up their people and they're going to allow the public uh, sector to get out of the way, let the private sector take a lead, but then also hold them accountable. And I think what you're talking about, with a public-private partnership in its true essence is exactly that. So um, I think there is a role for the private sector to play. Unfortunately, in Pakistan and a lot of other countries, um, business is now considered evil or bad or rent seekers. And I think there is a bit of blame for business to take on that as well. But the uh, perceptions have also shifted. Um, going back to this chronic issue like living at the edge, and I want uh, us to take a step back. Here And I would love your take on this. And, you know, it, it's a broad subject. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. But Pakistan really hasn't grown at a pace that it, which it should, given that it is an emerging economy. It's a young economy. We've seen over the decades, um, even in my life, I'm 31 years old, I've seen it happen time and time again. You've seen it probably longer than I have, that every time Pakistan's growth reaches 3%, 3.5%, 4%, uh, it overheats. And then we go through Another period of stabilization or an IMF program or some sort of crisis, um, what in your view is the reason for that happening consistently over the history of the country where you know Vietnams and South Koreas, which were poorer at one point in time, then Pakistan are now far richer, whereas Pakistan growth goes over four percent and people start raising the yellow flag and the warning flags and saying that you're about to overheat. Why does that keep happening to Pakistan
0: Well. You just told me that you're 31 years old and it turns out that uh, the, the Pakistan's uh, economic growth has gone into a secular decline since the age, since about 30 years of voyage. So oh, I yes. don't know what is the causality, but the correlation is certainly there. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 in the, in the 70s and 80s and 60s before that, Pakistan actually used to grow much faster than every country in South Asia, India included, right? And up until the 1990s, Pakistan was the richest country in South Asia per capita basis. Uh, Since then, Pakistan has growth has slowed down. Uh, And and you asked the reasons. I mean, that's a very difficult question, again, to answer. My simplistic answer, if you will, or simple answer is that we have a weak state. And and because of the weak state that we have, this is the reason we don't have any growth. Now, let me disassemble the answer and, and tell you that from weak state, I mean that this government is no, our governments have not been able to control terrorism in Pakistan. Our government have not been able to provide security of life uh, to people in Pakistan. You know the law and order issue has always been there, and this is since the first Akhwan Jihad in the, back in the seventies, uh, seventy seven, seventy eight. Um, slowly and slowly, but certainly since uh, the eighties, then we have this. Um, different types of, you know, mujahideens and terrorists and Taliban's and, you know, this and that. And, 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 and all of these uh, bad guys from around the world took refuge in Afghanistan and then in the tribal areas of Pakistan. So we've really had a very bad law and order situation in Pakistan over the years. It has actually improved in the last four or five years very much. Uh, but there is a certain lag and perception of Pakistan is obviously not that great in, in the international world. Uh, so that's like the first uh, problem in in Pakistan that because of our uh, lawyer issue, we don't have enough foreigners coming into Pakistan, whether they are tourists or they are business people. And once you have, once you're not as integrated with the rest of the world as you should be, obviously growth is going to be slower. Uh, we have fewer airlines in Pakistan when 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 people airlines used to fly. Uh, before the crisis, we had fewer airlines in, uh, that came in every airport of Pakistan combined than just the Dhaka airport in Bangladesh. Mm. Uh, um, when I was growing up as a child, every European airline used to come and you know stop in Karachi uh, on its way to the Far East uh, from Europe. But now, not so much. Uh, in fact, not at all. Uh, the only European airline I think that comes is British Airways that comes to Islamabad a couple of times a week, and and and, and so. Uh, Pakistan, because of the law and order, I think, is the single biggest problem in Pakistan. And that's because of the weak state, a, a stronger state that could have punished people, uh, that would have taken people to task, that could have prevented the law and order from deteriorating, would not have caused this problem. The second issue is uh, the legal system in Pakistan is not so good. Um, you know, the, you don't get justice in Pakistan in a timely manner. If somebody, you know, if a tenant decides not to move out of your property, it will take you years literally decades to get the tenant of your of your property um companies go bankrupt and, and and even though the bankruptcy laws are very clear in pakistan and very much in the favor of banks but even so if defaults happen and banks are not able to recover uh their money from industrialists. that makes you know interest rates high and, and loans costly to everybody even to the good people uh and and and, and 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 you know we talk about corruption in pakistan all the time but in the last 20 30 years obviously there has been corruption but i do not know of many people who have been convicted Of corruption, on the other hand, of course, the government you know puts uh, opposition politicians behind bars for no no reason at all. But the thing is, including
1: yourself, including
0: myself, um, when when seriously, I mean, but but you know, but but I'm not important. But the the point is that that obviously there has been corruption in the last twenty years, but we don't see any single one person or you know many people who've been convicted of this. so the, the, our legal system is really bad, and if I could change one thing about Pakistan, I would change the legal system. Before anything else, I would change the legal system, and 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 and, and if, if 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 you know, it, as they say if property rights are properly assigned, and they, from that, that means that if legal system is working out well, then then you know, then uh, the Chicago school theory is that everything else will take care of itself, and people will come up with you know uh, economically efficient you know deals and bargains and you know institutions and things will go on but the fundamental thing that the state has to provide is a is a predictable legal system that has not happened in Pakistan uh then of course uh you know we have this bureaucracy in Pakistan uh which which has very perverse incentives if you go into if you join the civil service at grade 17 or CSS as they call it uh you retire at grade 22 and you keep getting promotions if you do not even if you do nothing they, you can't get fired and so there's no incentive of doing anything and God forbid if you did do something uh and some next government didn't like you they can always put you in jail for misuse of authority and all that so there is obviously a paralysis and nobody really wants to work and unfortunately what has happened in Pakistan is that is like a two-tier system where the Gora Saab left and 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 now we have the new Gora Saabs who come into the CSS and if you can, no matter how smart or brilliant you are, if you're not the CSS, if you're not in the seventeen to twenty-two grade angle, you know you can be starting at grade one or grade ten or whatever, and you you are relegated to one to sixteen grades, you know. Uh, and 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 so I mean I think that we need to revamp our bureaucracy. Uh, there are some very very fine people in the bureaucracy, and we obviously don't pay them enough, and we should pay them more. Uh, but that but as a as a structure, we have to change it. Uh, we, we are using a lot of colonial structures both in in, in in bureaucracy and also in the armed forces where you have pMA graduates you know who are distinct from you know the other army people Javans and we have to sort of think about this and change this and just as in the army you know like you get retired or you don't get promoted if you're not serving well I think some sort of an you know attrition system and some sort of a retirement system has to be introduced in the uh, civil service uh, then I think uh, uh, you know an educated workforce is obviously required, and if you if, as we talked about this earlier, if you give an educated workforce to the country, uh, you know things good things will happen. So these are some of the things that I, I, I think I, I think we need to change in Pakistan and, and that is the reasons why I think that our growth is not as much as uh, there is in other countries around us.
1: Dr. Sab, that's a very comprehensive list, right? And, and, and I, I'm really glad you you went in all these directions. And just a couple of comments from my perspective. First, being on the weak state side and, and security, I think you're absolutely right that the lack of security um, and the perception and the terrorism that has uh, ravaged Pakistan over the last few years is definitely linked to its slowdown in the economy. Um, the counterpoint one may make to your point was that The state chooses to be weak versus is weak, um, and we can argue about it uh, back and forth. But the flip side of that argument on people may say is that when you look at movements like the PTM or other movements that come out, the state can be very heavy handed and shut them down when it chooses to. Meanwhile, people like Maulana Abdul Aziz, and I'll be pretty blunt uh, go around in Islamabad and nothing happens to them, even though case after case is filed against them. So I'm a bit confused about where the weakness of the state, whether it is a weakness inherent in the state or whether it's a matter of will, and we don't have to have a debate on it, but I think that is an important point to consider. Um, the legal side, you're absolutely right, right? When you look at cases like the Pakistan steel mills, Rico Dick, where Pakistan lost in international arbitration, Karki, which Pakistan had lost and and the PTI government recently uh, agreed to terms and is trying to settle it. Um, that obviously has a major impact, but you look at the superior judiciary right now, it's going after health ministers and intervening yet again in the affairs of the executive. And I, I agree that something has to, has to happen there um and of course the bureaucracy and 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 corruption issues related to that um, are important and I think like it's worth pointing out to the listener here that when you compare Pakistan's corruption perceptions or corruption data uh with Bangladesh with Vietnam with even China uh, Pakistan is actually perceived to be a less corrupt society but it grows uh, slower. so this whole argument that you know true corruption uh, no one can deny it's bad for an economy but, how closely it is linked to economic growth is something that can be debated, and this mantra that Pakistan's fallen behind because there is some inherent corruption is 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 a bit uh, questionable, to say the least. Um, but all of these reforms are important, and I agree with you that should be part of the reform agenda. My question to you is that people will turn to you when you raise these points and, and ask that, you know, you were in government. The Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz has a pretty strong majority in Parliament a few years ago. Um, why was it not able to do these structural reforms? And from your perspective, are there two or three key areas on the reform side or on the economy side where when you look back and say maybe we should have done something differently back then? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, I mean,
0: any any, any Period. any life lived i mean you have to introspect and figure out what you could have done differently uh, and what we should have done differently um, and so I'll, I'll point that out to you but let me just first uh, correct that that we had a majority in uh the national assembly but we did not have a majority in the senate and we correct. did not have the two-thirds majority to in 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 the chambers to uh, bring about a uh, constitutional amendment okay so so our powers were there but they were not absolute uh, in terms of uh, changing the constitution now uh, and which would and deep-seated reform would require that but that said i think that we should have tried more for uh, reform of the judicial system the legal system in pakistan you know uh, making sure that uh, what they call sasta or asan in saf that, you know, uh, there should have been, you know, uh, we should have made some changes in the legal system. I don't I'm not a lawyer, so I can't tell you what, uh, to make sure that uh, the legal system becomes more predictable um, and, 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 and easy to understand and easy for common people and businesses to navigate. So that, I think, uh, uh, we tried, I guess, but we should have tried more, I guess. So that, that's, I think that's one uh, shortcoming uh make mistake i think also that although we again we tried uh to change nab laws and shay the is on records having said that he was informed by people that uh, then chief justice would have struck down any changes in the nab laws he would have brought about uh, but again i think that we should have maybe tried harder to um, change the nab laws i know that there was a one point that we had an agreement with people's party and pti on the changes in nab laws but then this is before panama happened and then when panama happened those guys backtracked but that's one uh, that's one area i wish that we had reformed nab or ended and finished nab we i wish we had uh, changed uh, legal systems in pakistan and made it more easy uh, those two things spring up uh, and in in the third i would say is that uh, Again, I think not for lack of trying. We did try and that I think we should have, there's a National Finance Commission Award. We are still on the seventh National Finance Commission Award. And I think we should have done an eighth National Finance Commission Award, or at least, you know, we did try to do it and, and brought about some sort of a consensus to uh, to see how we can address this structural uh, problems that we have with our federal budget deficit.
1: Interesting that, you know, one of the things that people point out as one of the key shortcomings of the Nawaz government were the overvalued exchange rate, um, which was primarily before your uh, entry as finance minister, and then the fact that Pakistan was facing the IMF as the PMLN was uh, leaving office. Um, what would your response be to those who would say that, you know, A, forex were built up on the back of borrowing and went up to about $24 billion um, in the middle of the PMLN tenure. And by the time the Nawaz League was out of power, they were you know, at, at serious lows and the currency was under pressure and knocking, Pakistan was knocking again on the IMF stores. Uh, what's your response to those that said this was perhaps the most serious uh, mistake or shortcoming of the PMLN administration? I, I,
0: I thought that we were a little late in, 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 in the day in in in, in uh, devaluing the, the rupee, for sure. I mean, you know, I think we could have done it a little sooner. Um, but I, I think that, if you look at the politics in Pakistan at the time, um, when I first devalued in December, you know the main opposition leader then, Imran Khan, actually criticized that you know, you're know you making everything expensive and you're making the debt more expensive and this and that. And in four or five years' time, Asad Dumar, who would tweet about everything, never tweeted that you know, we should have actually uh, devalued the exchange rate. No independent analyst, no economist uh, in Pakistan, except for a few. Uh, except one or two, in fact, would talk about devaluation. You know, nobody actually did. Um, and no, no, none of the opposition did. And then as soon as the government left, uh, these guys, I mean, I started the devaluation. I brought it from 110, 105 to 115. And and, 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 and and PTI came at 122, I think. And then they devalued to 145 or so, uh, but with no ex- no improvement in exports. In fact, the increase in exports in the year that uh, Shahid abbasi was the prime minister and I was the finance minister was 13%. Uh, which is the highest growth in exports in 10 years. And uh, in after that, after us, when they uh, came into power, they devalued the currency by 20%, 30%, 35%. And then they actually had a 2% decrease in exports to show for. Uh, so not only did they devalue a lot and very quickly, but they had nothing to show for it. Uh, now, the thing is that when you devalue a currency, in in, in in you have a one-year window or six-month window where you can uh, sell things and, and you become more competitive. Then, obviously, rented prices catch up. Wages catch up, inflation catches up, and, and everything catches up. Uh, so just by devaluing the currency, you will not increase exports. You have to do real reforms and real things, um, which I think PTI was unable to do. But surely, um, because of the uh, CPAC, uh, because of... Uh, a lot of uh, power generation needs and power generation being set up in pakistan because of a lot of machinery exports imports uh, we had a very large import bill and and that's why we're running a high current account deficit now it turns out that having a large current account deficit is not bad in in and of itself in fact, you would ex- expect developing countries to run a current account deficit. The problem is financing that current account deficit. Mm-hmm. And as long as people are willing to finance it, as long as the people are seeing that, yes, you will have enough money generation in the future to be able to pay back these loans, there is nothing wrong with it. In October of the 2017, uh, I actually led a Pakistan delegation to sell bonds two and a half billion dollars worth of Sakuks and bonds in the international market and we were able to sell it for I think six percent for five years and seven and a half percent for 10-year loans uh in in April of uh, 2018 the month we month before we left or in fact in May of 2018 also our International Bank an American International Bank was willing to offer me two billion dollars at eight percent for two years it and I didn't take it because I thought, no, we are now going and the next government will decide this. So even then, people were willing to fund our current account deficit. And, of course, there was a plan uh, to to increase exports. And, and, and we knew that once the power plants were set up and the last was being set up uh, and, in fact, came into uh, last of the gas plants came, into, uh, came online on, in May of uh, 2018. And, and, and one power, coal power plant uh, came online a year after we left. Uh, so we knew that imports were going to re- decrease a bit and they have decreased, you know, since the machinery imports have decreased. And, and, and we thought that we had a plan of uh, bringing in enough Chinese investments from China uh, in, in, in industrial parks that we were making uh, that we would be able to uh, bring a, bring a reasonable increase in exports. Uh, that said, yes, I mean I, I concede openly that uh, if I were the finance minister a little bit ahead of time, I would have devalued the currency a little sooner. Hmm. Uh, but I, I I don't think that 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 the, the the reason Pakistan's economy has suffered so much, the reason we've gone to one percent growth or two percent growth from the five point eight percent growth that we left, is because of a little late devaluation. I think that, uh, and I'm really surprised that. Uh, people of the caliber of Asad Umar sahab and, and Razak Dawood sahab, very mature politicians and, and, and business people, who would actually, after they came into the government, start talking about how Pakistan was going to go bankrupt. This is Asad Umar's word. Or how Pakistan was on the verge of default. This is Mr. Razak Dawood's word. Uh, and yet, I know that when Asad Umar was leading Engro, and Engro was one of the and the largest debtor in Pakistan, Asad Umar never said that Engro was looking at bankruptcy. And Razak dawood Saab obviously owns this huge company called Descon and he never says that, you know, even if it were true, not that it is, that we are looking at default. These are not things you say, you know, and, and in, mm. in, 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 in order to badmouth the Muslim League, you know, Ms. Mimran khan Saab going around the world and, you know, saying, oh, there is so much corruption in Pakistan and everybody is a chore except for him. And, and you know, and <laughs> an irony just died, but, <laughs> you mm. know, but, but, but. <laughs> But you know, and so, so so they basically just turned off the rest of the world from investing in Pakistan or invest buying Pakistani bonds and all that. And yet you know, when, 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 when in the current governor came and they started giving 13%, 13.5% interest rates on Pakistani rupee, you know, they still were able to get $3 billion of foreign money. So, people were still willing to invest in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that we, we got them to invest in Pakistan at 5 6%, and these guys are paying 13%, 14% for that. Uh, but so, I, I think that the crisis in Pakistan really came uh, after these guys, uh, not because of their quick devaluation. That's not what happened. But once they started speaking ill of Pakistan, once they started speaking badly of our economy and, and they, uh, then they went ahead and then they raised every conceivable price, saying. So they went and they increased electricity price by God knows, 100 percent or something or average 50 percent. they increased gas prices for absolutely no reason at all by 50, 60, 70 percent, 80 percent in industrial in the case of industries in Sindh 100 percent. Uh, so when you when you raise these prices, obviously you've made uh, businesses uncompetitive vis-a-vis the rest of the world. So the, the advantage of devaluing the currency was dissipated right away, and 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 it turns out, and this is something that uh, you know political economy teaches you, not so much economics, that you have to think about this. Just because we uh, are circular deficit and you increase a tariffs does not mean the circular deficit will go to zero what happened is that circular deficit still stays and and the reason stays is that inefficiency grows up goes up and so 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 by increasing prices they actually made it possible for them to you know become more inefficient become lazier Uh, the bill collection went down there's not been a single improvement of even one percent in in transmission and distribution losses um, you know these guys were importing furnace oil i don't know why um when you had so much cheaper lng available which is twice as efficient so so they've made some mistakes perhaps uh, i'm not claiming that the mistakes were intentional but they've made mistakes and i i think that you know this enthusiasm for raising prices for raising power tariffs for devaluing the currency and doing everything opposite of what we did I think was a little much and, and and then you push the economy into recession and now it's very difficult to change sentiments you know it's not so easy to do that
1: those are interesting points and i agree with you that you know when the finance minister of a country goes around saying that the country's on the brink of default or says that the, uh, to the stock markets to other investors and obviously the confidence goes away and part of the job of a finance minister is to keep confidence up even when there are difficult times ahead and that, of course, created uh, or, or fed the storm that was uh, engulfing Pakistan. The one thing I would like to push back on respectfully um, is that, you know, when you do devalue the currency an energy importing country like Pakistan must at the same time uh, also restructure its tariffs, particularly for imported energy sources. So I just like as a follow up, like wanted to dig a bit deeper in terms of why do you think that the restructuring of the tariffs, both on the gas and the electricity side was not warranted, given that. Once you do devalue the currency, your imported energy cost also goes up and it must reflect so in the domestic markets.
0: Okay, that's a very good question again. Uh, And I'll stop saying very good questions to your questions because they all seem to be like that. Uh, The gas in Pakistan, there are two types of gases in Pakistan. right? There's the LNG, RLNG, you know, regasified, liquefied uh, natural gas which we important and and surely if you devalue the currency that you know the prices should be passed on and that's that and it's ring fans so customers of rlng have to pay the real cost of rlng there is no subsidy involved or shouldn't be then there is domestic gas which is produced in pakistan some of it is linked to dollars some of it is linked to international prices and some of it is just brain in pakistani rupees and, and and there was absolutely no need at that point i Guarantee you this: there was no need in this point. At this point, those both those companies, SSGC and SNGPL, were actually making money to raise gas prices so much. I don't know why they did this. Perhaps the IMF conditionality was that whatever OGRA recommends, you have to increase, and and you have given this thing to OGRA that the gas company should make seventeen percent return on assets, not return on investment, return on assets. Or 16, so gas companies go and just keep laying pipelines, and the more pipelines they lay, whether they have gas or not, the, the more you know tariffs they will get. There was no reason why the government should have agreed to this, and, and they, they should they could easily revise this this uh, gui- guideline that they have given to OGRA, and and rather than 16% profits on assets, they could just you know make it 10%. But in any case, I I, I thought that raising gas prices was no uh, no solution to it. No, there was no reason for it. Uh, In terms of electricity price, yes, to the extent that the uh, fuel uh, cost becomes more expensive, you pass that on. I'm absolutely not saying that you take a hit. You pass that on. But uh, they were increasing the price by more than just the fuel price. That's the thing. They were trying to cover uh, for what they call circular debt or what is called for circular debt, which actually is just a power sector deficit. And, 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 and whereas you have now brought in more revenue for the, for, 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 for into the power sector by raising prices on the consumers, you have nothing to show for in terms of reducing the power sector deficit, in terms of reducing the consumer uh, circular debt. So where is that money going? And obviously, that money is going in, in inefficiencies, that you're not collecting as many bills as you should. Um, that you're not improving transmission cost, that you're not improving distribution cost. Uh, so those are the things that maybe, maybe maybe, your merit order is not correct. So there were things that they could have done really uh, to to solve this issue. Most of our energies were directed towards bringing in more power generation. Mia Nawashree was very focused. And in, in five years, I think there was probably never a week that he did not chair a meeting on, on energy. And somehow Allah helped us and we were able to bring in enough power in Pakistan that load shedding now is a thing of the past. But, you know, their job was not just to raise prices, but it was also to try and reform the sector and try I mean, you know, let me just very quickly concede that when we left, we've not solved every problem, you know, in Pakistan. There were lots of other problems in Pakistan, Mm -hmm. including a problem of distribution losses, transmission losses. And those were challenging issues. They are not easy to do. But... When you were so happy to blame us for everything and so happy to even call us corrupt, if there are line losses and all that stuff, then when you come to power, then you should at least try and, you know, do the hard work of reforming and not take the easy way out of, of just, you know, raising tariffs.
1: No, that I, I agree. I think raising tariffs is a blunt instrument. Um, shifting gears a bit um, on the second point you made around bringing in Chinese investments and there was a plan for that. Um, so I was curious to hear your thoughts on this was when I look back at 2017 18 and and Pakistan's economy uh myself and a few others um that I was speaking to at that time we all sort of saw the writing on the wall which was that eventually there would be a need for another IMF program you were in the finance ministry at that time and as you were leaving office and elections were around the corner from your perspective, were you looking back at the future and saying, if you were to come back as finance minister and the Muslim League Nawaz was elected, was there a recognition that IMF was the only way out for the economy? Or did you think that, no, yes, the situation is, uh, is getting worse for the economy, but there could be a soft landing and the economy could have that soft landing and continue to grow without going to the IMF? What, were you, what was your thinking at that time as the economy was slowing down?
0: i i am not sure whether we would have gone to the fund or not Uh, it certainly was a possibility and um, after we had if we had won this election that's something that we would have decided then Uh, but like i said we understood that there were serious issues with our uh, balance of payment and that uh, typically pakistan runs a current account deficit of 1.5 percent of gdp one point five one and one to one and five one point five percent that year i think the 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 current account deficit had gone to 4.5 that was not sustainable so we had to do something about that um so uh i think that uh, we had already started speaking to the chinese for some balance of payment support and in fact they came through a week after we left uh we had also spoken to saudi arabia uh, and they, and along with UAE, came through uh, after the new government came in, which is just as well, because obviously they would um, establish goodwill with the guys coming in and not with the guys going out. Uh, but I think that once they had this kind of support, uh, uh, because they'd spoken so badly of the Pakistan's economy, the foreign banks and was, were not willing to fund them, uh, nor... Uh, was anybody willing to buy Pakistani paper, euro bonds, and sukuk, etc.? And uh, just as you cannot run a business uh, with, without a bank by just borrowing from friends, so you cannot run a country by just you know getting money or borrowing from friends. You have to have a, a, you know the ability to tap the international markets. They had lost that ability, so then fund was the only option. Then they should have just you know, given that they had lost the ability, they could have just gone to the fund. Uh, in the end, I think that they waited too long. And, uh, and, and and then once they went to the fund, I think this uh, requirement of accepting um, such a high interest rate, uh, this requirement of accepting to raise tariffs uh, of electricity and power by so much uh, were, I think, wrong strategies, both from the point of view of the International Monetary Fund and from the point of view of the government of Pakistan. Uh, if Pakistan has had... 12 or 18 fund programs and has only been able to complete one during our tenure and not able to complete ever, then it's obviously the government of Pakistan's fault, but it's also the IMF also, uh, you know, look itself, um, hmm. uh, think about it itself, that, you know, what's it, what is it that it's doing wrong in setting up these performance, uh, uh, you know, benchmarks uh, that Pakistan is not able to meet. And uh, for instance, I mean, you know, I mean, in, in circular debt, uh, i would have i would have kept uh i would have kept a benchmark of what is the new addition to circular debt and not worry about how much tariffs you raise you know because you've raised all these tariffs but you know there's no improvement in circular debt whereas obviously the desire of the fund and the government of pakistan has to be to reduce uh, circular debt not just raise tariffs for its you know for its own sake uh i think this uh, raising interest on forward-looking inflation i think that just was very disastrous for Pakistan. If you would allow me uh, a few seconds, uh, I'll just tell you that look, Pakistani government is the largest debtor in Pakistan. So, one percent interest increase of one percent in interest raises our uh, deficit by uh, raises our uh, debt servicing and hence the deficit by two hundred and fifty billion rupees a year. Mm. If you then raise your interest by six f- percent, that means that you were paying fifteen hundred billion rupees extra in interest rates. Now, that 1,500 billion rupees has to come from some place. Uh, so it has to come from either the private sector. Uh, but since the private sector has no money because private savings is about equal to private investment, so it has to come from foreign savings. And when it comes to for foreign savings, it actually means that your current account deficit will never actually decrease substantially as long as your budget deficit is so high. So the policy actually was contradictory that on the one hand, you're erasing interest rates so much uh, that your deficits are going to go up, but, you know, and you're also, uh, you're developing the currency to bring the current account deficit down, but uh, your borrowing needs from foreigners actually is not going to allow you to bring the current account deficit down. So there was some contradiction in this policy. And, and because of that, you know, we were able to slow down imports a little, but we were absolutely not able to increase exports uh, because you still needed f- so much foreign savings to come into Pakistan. Uh uh, to finance the budget deficit, uh, so I, I think now, obviously, you know, uh, well, we've crossed the Rubicon, if you will, but in, you know, and in, in, in we've, we've we've now have nine percent interest rates, uh, which, in terms of forward-looking inflation, is about zero percent. Uh, they say real interest rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that they might even want to decrease the interest rate a little bit more, uh, and. Uh, You know, this huge transfers to just banks over the last year has has really not been helpful to the Pakistan economy, raising interest rates so much.
1: That's interesting because, you know, I disagree a bit there with you because raising interest rates because the government is the biggest uh, uh, borrower in the country and it uses that money primarily uh, to then develop or have large-scale public sector development programs, which then are linked to machinery imports, et cetera, that creates a current account deficit. So it's a cyclical thing there. I don't know how the state bank could have managed to slow down the economic growth and therefore rein in the current account deficit and control what it needed to do on the external side without raising interest rates. But I understand that it is it is a difficult situation because once you do that, you enter into this uh, self-reinforcing cycle where the cost of borrowing goes up therefore the fiscal deficit goes up therefore the economy must slow down even more to make sure that you know the numbers are being met and the targets with the imf are being met and it's it's a it's a it's a very tricky challenge once you enter that scope um especially if you as a government have have been unable to borrow from international markets because you've said that you're on the brink of default etc um
0: can i just int- interject the, here and, and if no if please go
1: ahead
0: that look uh, the idea of slowing down the entire economy for a uh, slowing down imports which is only 20 percent of our current economy did not appeal to me so much uh, you know i thought fine if you're going to you know let our current account policy or our trade policy be expressed through our exchange rate policy and 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 so it was okay to you know maybe devalue the currency uh, but then devalue the currency and at the same time raise interest rates so much that A, the deficit goes up, and, and the deficit goes up means you need foreigners to save, to transfer their savings into Pakistan to finance your deficit, means that your current account deficit is not never going to go down. Uh, I thought that was a little bit too much. Uh, you know, I, I, they could have raised the interest rates by a couple of percentage points. If we, we, we left at six and a quarter. They could have taken it to maybe nine, nine and a half, uh, and, and, and waited it out and see what would have happened. What happened was that when, when they raised all these prices of tariffs and all that, and much of that inflation then in Pakistan was actually because of increase in government prices, not because of expansionary monetary policy, right? When they increased these prices, what happened is uh, that there were supply shortages. Uh, so uh, I, 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 I give you an example. When I was in jail, I actually read a book by uh, Banerjee and Duflo on poor economics. You know, and they talk about how uh, poor people make economic choices. And, uh, and and at the same time, there was a police uh, guard in our jail cell uh, whose family owned six and a half acres of land somewhere near Faisalabad. And and these are small mm-hmm. landholding, and, and, and they used to grow vegetables and all that. Well, that year, actually, they did not grow any vegetable because they couldn't afford to buy any seeds. And and this mm-hmm. was basically, you know, Duflo's and, and Banerjee's and Duflo's book written all over, really. Uh, uh, so I was reading the same book, and I was talking to the same guy, this guy, and I would really understand so much of why his parents were choosing to do, you know, choosing, making the choices that they were. So it turns out that they did not grow any any uh, any of the vegetables that they would normally grow in six and a half acres, right? Uh, and and then this January, a month after I was released from jail, there was uh, the f- f- inflation in perishable foods was 89%. Nice. Now, 89% is not because of increase in diesel prices and petrol prices. They did not go up so much. It has to be supply shortages that you made mm-hmm. the poor people, the poor farmers, so poor that they did not have enough money to buy seeds, and then you increased taxes on fertilizer and things like that, so that the supply actually became short. So, so, so you know, the, the raising these tariffs uh, have uh, you know the, these things have other consequences that you know people need to think through uh, before they decide.
1: No, I completely agree. And I think those supply shocks, right? Even today in coronavirus, like that's my biggest fear is that as things freeze up in the formal and the informal economy, um, if you if you look away from the agricultural markets in Pakistan and and if there is a risk of a supply shock yet again, you are looking at much, much dire situations because if inflation, particularly for perishables, shoots up yet again, then that three thousand, four thousand rupee SAS cash transfer doesn't Mean much because inflation will erode their purchasing power really aggressively, right? So I think that's a very important point that people at times miss is that the 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 rapid rate of increase in inflation has the tendency, particularly in in Pakistan, where the un unbanked population or underbanked population is high, because they won't spend on making buying those seeds or buying that fertilizer, which then means that you can't feed people, and then there's an inflation shock on top of everything else. So I think that is a very important point, and I, I'm glad you raised that. Speaking of jail, um, and I'm going to, you know, as we as we head to the end of our conversation, um, to a couple of personal questions. I am a Maimon. I mentioned that to you before as well, and I remember growing up, you know, looking at my elders, even my father or my grandfather who was alive a few years ago, you know, there was this view in the Maimon community that we stay away from politics, um, and that we do our business, we do charity, we try to help the poor and, and be giving and helpful as we much as we can take care of each other. But politics is not for Maimans. You are a successful businessman and then you as a Maimon decided to enter politics. And I'm curious as to what your thinking was and why did you decide to go uh, and cut against the grain, which is essentially our, our view as a community that politics is not for the Maimon community essentially would be the mainstream view. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I have a PhD in public finance and political economy. Okay, so I mean, you know, I mean, I had an interest in public finance and political economy. Uh, I guess since college, right? Uh, so it's not surprising that I would be interested in these things. Um, and 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 I, you know, I, Allah has been very kind, and we have a, a pretty decent uh, business going. Um, but you know i did this for 25 years and now and then i was you know this was a journey of self-actualization and and there is nothing that says that you know maimans can't do politics and in fact uh, uh, you'd be surprised to know that mr abdul satar edhi before he became the kick-ass uh, social worker that he did mm-hmm. actually ran in elections in 1975 i think or by elections and um, and and Han- mr hanif tayyab haji hanif tayyab uh, a mm-hmm. Maiman politician became a federal minister for petroleum and natural resources. Farooq Satar Saab is, is a Maiman politician. So, you know, uh, from time to time, you know, uh, I guess the, this bug bites a uh, Maiman here and there and, you know, they enter yeah. in politics. Uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, Rashid Godil, also joined MQM and became an MNA and won elections twice. And, and then since then he's left uh, MQM and has joined PTI. Uh, so there are Maimans in politics. Uh, in fact, to another friend of mine, uh, 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 Bilal, uh, Bilal Ahmed Bhuth, he's also a, a member of Parliament in Sindh, a member of Sindh's provincial assembly, Maiman guy. So there are a fair, fairly good amount of number of maimants now uh, in politics. So it's nothing really novel or uh, different.
1: Which I think is great. And I think you're one of the few role models and trailblazers there and, you know, from a personal perspective it was a shame to see that you know when the national accountability bureau arrested you and put you in jail which was you know disappointing to say the least as someone who has watched politics and would love to see more mifti smiles be in politics because there is a need for you know someone like you and others to enter and and try to change things so you know from that perspective it was quite disappointing um but you know from there is also this strain among younger pakistanis uh, across the board that they're frustrated and they're sick and tired uh, of the status quo and they like to see change and part of imran khan's appeal whether you agree with him or not was that he had managed to capture the youth's imagination on what change was possible uh, many of whom at least the ones i knew who voted or stood by him for a long period of time are disappointed um, obviously i don't that's anecdotal evidence and survey data may show otherwise but he still has a, a large following in the youth, but a large following of Pakistan's youth is also disappointed. Um, as, as someone who's been in the system, both in the private sector side, um, on the public side and has been successful, like what would be your message to younger Pakistanis who want to see change but don't really see change happening uh, with the current setup or with the way politics uh, runs in Pakistan these days?
0: well i mean I, let me just uh, say that uh, although i don't have too many good things to say about pti uh, but i think that uh, imran khan's ability to uh, to captivate uh, young people and to bring the, to to get them interested in politics and also to get uh, women interested in politics i think it's it's it's, it's a good thing and, and I hope that people stay engaged. And uh, But, uh, you know, there are degrees of, uh, or the ways of staying engaged and, and going on Twitter and, and going on Facebook, as seems to be the norm these days in Pakistan and around the world, and, and bad-mouthing <laughs> people and, 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 you know, and uh, gali-galoching people, if you will, or swearing at people, you know, that's hardly the type of engagement that we want from our youth. Uh, uh, I have kids, you know, younger than my children, who say so many horrible things to me that you would never say this to me on my face. But you know, I don't know why they say this. Uh, and 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 anyway, but the point is that I think that people should get engaged, should remain engaged, and, 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 and get engaged in, in in politics and activism. And 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 as we are trying to, we are a new and a young country, as and we have an old culture, but a young country. And as we are trying to set up this system, as we are trying to make new. Uh, a new social contract uh, where we're trying to empower the poor where we're trying to empower the the the, the low-income people where we're trying to educate them and and, and provide them health care you know uh, i think uh, greater involvement of youth would be very useful uh, and 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 i think that because you know they 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 have greater they have fewer ish because they've not really entered their work life, and they have fewer uh, disillusionments with the government, and, and and they have more idealism. So I think that would be good to infuse more idealism into the Pakistan's polity. Um, so that would be good. I mean, I'm I, I, I'm very happy that the youth are getting more youth are getting involved, and I hope they stay engaged. Uh, but this uh, swearing and name calling on Facebook and Twitter could actually mm. you know, take a break, if, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, no, I think I, I couldn't agree more with you there that, that you know, it's against our cultural norms. It's against decency and humanity and the way people interact behind the veil of a computer screen is at times shameful. And I agree that, you know, people would not even say some of those things to their worst enemies on their face, uh, but they behave much, much worse when they're on Twitter or social media. Um my final question to you, and I know it's very unlikely, probably impossible it's going to happen, but let's say tomorrow or day after the prime minister calls you and says, as, you know, Miftah Saab, I need some of your advice, and you've been finance minister, and tell me two or three things I need to do as uh, coronavirus or Pakistan's economy continues to slow down because of this pandemic, um, what would you advise him in terms of priorities uh, to make sure that Pakistanis come out on the right end of this pandemic?
0: Okay, my, my my general wish list for 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 Pakistan right now in 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 terms of the reforms uh, is, is a long wish list. Uh, in in Corona, I, I like I said, I mean, I, I what I just told you that that the, the number one focus of fiscal policy should be to help the low income people uh, see through this crisis. Um, I would also caution uh, anybody that. Unfortunately, things are going to get much worse before they get better in Pakistan in terms of coronavirus. Uh, that we are talking about lockdowns and we are worried about no low-income people, etc. The, the, the dar daily wagers, not having work. And that's a very significant problem, you know. Uh, but the other option, and, and, and this, you are really between the devil and the deep sea, the other ob- problem is, 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 is the spread of infection. And I, I see that by 15th of May, God forbid, we would have horrible numbers of you know of, of morbidity and, and mortality in Pakistan. So I, I, I think that we have to be very, very cautious for the next 15, 20 days. And, and unfortunately, I see that Pakistanis, private sector people, private people individually, and uh, the, the government is not really, um, I, I think they're not getting the power of exponentials you know and, and and how things things will get much worse before they get better i hope that i i hope to god i'm wrong but i would at this point think that that's something that you know i if i were to advise somebody i would say just be very very careful for the next 15 20 days uh, for fiscal for, that's the public health policy for fiscal policy just see that the poor uh, you know uh, are uh, poor are able to Survive these the next three four months. Uh, I think in Sanya, uh, Doctor Sanya and nishter they have a good human being who's running it. Uh, I for monetary policy, I think uh, they need to uh, ensure that there is liquidity in the market. I think uh, they have to come up with out of the box solutions to help small and medium businesses, very small businesses. and and, and yes, there would be spillages. Yes, there would be some. Uh, money going to the wrong people. Yes, there will be some defaults, but you know, take that uh, you know on the chin and and, and and go through with the policy. So th- that would be my advice.
1: Dr. Miftah Ismail, thank you so much for taking out the time. This was a fascinating conversation and I hope you stay safe, your family stays safe and we'll come out on the right end of this pandemic and hopefully I'll see you in Pakistan soon, inshallah.
0: Thank you very much. Thank I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Pakistanamy. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe to it using your favorite podcast app and do share it with your friends and family, as well as on your social media. Hope you tune in next time.